Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you as a people who are excited to hear from you, Lord. You are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, our creator, our sustainer, and in Jesus you are our Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would show yourself glorious this morning, Lord, that you would pull back the veil to some degree and let us see your glory in your word. Lord, help us to see you as all-satisfying. Help us, Lord, to even taste and see and enjoy you this morning, Lord, to find our full pleasure in you. Lord, that's something that only you can do. It's something we're entirely dependent on you to come and do. And so as we open your word, Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would show us Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're in this series um, in Galatians called Finally Free, and it's, it's about how the gospel sets us free in Jesus. And last week we looked at a meeting that was one of the most important meetings in world history, and it's in the beginning of chapter 2 of Galatians, and it was a meeting between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, so Peter, John, and James. And it was a super high-stakes meeting, and the reason was is because Paul was going around to Galatia and other places, and he's preaching the message that you can be included in God's family, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be fully accepted by God just by trusting in Christ, just by putting your hope in the Messiah. And what happened was there were some other missionaries that came around, some legalistic missionaries, and they were preaching a different message. They were coming around saying, well, you know, if you're going to be saved by a Jewish Messiah, you're going to have to be a bit more Jewish. And so they were insisting on things like circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law to be saved in Christ. And these false teachers were also adding the idea of like, you know, that's what the Jerusalem apostles teach. You know, they kind of put that apostolic authority on their message. And if that was true, we saw it last week, that'd be devastating. I mean, Ephesians talks about how the apostles are the, the foundation of the church. And if Paul and Peter and John and James didn't agree on the gospel from the beginning, you have a cracked foundation, you can't build anything. And so um, Paul knew, though, Paul knew that this wasn't true. He knew it wasn't true. He knew that what those false teachers were saying wasn't true because years before he'd had this meeting with Peter, James, and John, he brought before them the gospel he was preaching, and they agreed. They agreed on the gospel message, as Paul assumed that they would, and then there was one little thing that was added. They also affirmed each other's ministries. Take a look at Galatians 2.9. It says, when James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then there's this interesting addition here in verse 10, and this is what we're going to focus on this morning. I said I don't really have time for it last week, but I think it's worth spending a whole morning on, which is verse 10. He says, They only ask that we remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. I think that's surprising, guys. I think that that little addition there is surprising. It's surprising that they would mention right next to the core the core purpose, the most important function of the church, which is preaching the gospel, they would add, and don't forget the poor. You know, there's something really significant there. It shows that that's a, a core value of the church. It's something that united them. The gospel united them, and their care for the poor united them as a global church. And, and I want to ask this morning, why did the apostles single out that particular good work? I mean, they could have mentioned a bunch of other good works, right? Faith produces all kinds of good works in us, but they mentioned that particular good work as core to the church. And as we look at the Old Testament, we're going to find that it was a core value of God's people in the Old Covenant, too, care for the poor. So, so why is that? I want to look at two reasons. One of the reasons is, is that God has created a people to glorify his generosity 
That would be the first reason. And then the second reason would be that the gospel specifically frees us to be generous to the poor. So the first one is God created a people for his glory, to glorify his generosity. Take a look at Isaiah 43. It's a fundamental passage on why he created us, why he created us as a people. Um, Originally speaking to his old covenant people, it says this, Isaiah 43, 5 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name. Everyone who's created for my glory, whom I made and formed. Here we find out, what were we created for? We were created for God's glory. God has always wanted a visible people that would show what he's like. A visible people, a community, a family that would show the world what he's like. We live in a very individualistic time. People tend to think, well, I don't really need the church. I can get all the components of the church online, you know, teaching. I can, you know, pray with friends. I can do these different things. And they say, I don't need the church. It's funny that we're asking the question of whether we need it when we should be asking the question of why did God create it? God's always wanted a visible people, a people that gather together in our community that are a family that would display his glory. And so we can't say, oh, I don't need it. This is the fundamental reason why we've been created. God is the most generous of all beings. And so when he created a people, he wants to use them to display his generosity. And of course, God was the first one to ever be generous to the poor, right? You remember when? Adam and Eve banished from the garden because of their sin. He clothed them. He was the first to have an act of generosity towards the poor. Guys, God is the most generous of all beings. And so he created for himself a people that would display his amazing generosity. And so when the Lord established his people, Israel, he gave them laws. And some of those laws were specifically crafted so that his people would be a generous people. Um, If you look at Deuteronomy 15.7, he said that they were to give the poor more than a handout. Deuteronomy 15.7 says, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any town of your land that the Lord has given you, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, open your hand and freely lend him whatever he needs. Right? And God gave him all these really creative ways to help the poor, too. I love looking at God's law and seeing how he gave them creative ways to help the poor. In Deuteronomy 14, they they talked about the tithe for the poor. So every Israelite would give 10% of their goods to um, the Levites and the priests to run temple worship. But every third year, that whole tithe went to the storehouse so it could be distributed to the poor. So it could be distributed, it says, to the refugee, the fatherless, the widow. Right, and so that third that third year, the whole tithe would go to that. We have other things like gleaning. You guys know about gleaning? Leviticus nineteen, really cool. In the old covenant, you, the farmers weren't allowed to harvest their entire field. They had to leave little bits of their field unharvested. Why? So the poor could come and they could get food and harvest. And it's really cool because it provided a way for them to get food, but it also provided them the dignity of work at the same time. But it was already grown for them. They just had to come in. And who was fam- what famous person was gleaning? Ruth, right? Ruth was gleaning in the, in the field of Boaz. She was destitute, and she knew she could go in that field, and she'd be protected from harm, and actually collect what she needed. God also instituted what was called a sabbatical year. So in Deuteronomy 15, he says, on every seventh year, you will cancel debts. This is how it's done. <laughs> I love this. This is how it's done. Every creditor should cancel the debts. <laughs> you know, it's like pretty simple. And so every seventh year, if people were in debt, their debts got canceled. It was a way for keeping people in constant chronic poverty. And then, you know, guys know about the Jubilee year, right? Every 49th year, so every 7-7, every 49th year, families would receive back their land. 
So when God's people first came into the promised land, they were all given land, right? Their clans and their families were all given pieces of land. That was their inheritance to hand down to their kids. Some people, whether it was through you know, foolish behavior or whether it was through calamity, ended up having to sell their land. And the cool thing about it is the Lord didn't want generational poverty. He didn't want generation after generation not having their ancestral land. And so on the 49th year, it was the year of Jubilee, and they could get their whole land back. Craig Bloomberg says this, On average, each person or family had at least one in a lifetime chance to start afresh, no matter how irresponsible they had been with their finances or how far they had fallen into debt. Isn't that amazing? God instituted all this stuff to make a people that would glorify his generosity. I just love that. I love God's creativity in it, right? He's like, okay, we can do this, and we'll do that, and we'll do these things. Guys, generosity to the poor is a core, was a core value of the Old Testament people of God. And this is your spiritual heritage. When we get a little further in Galatians, we'll hear that you who trust in Christ are the sons and daughters of Abraham. You are, that, those are your spiritual ancestors, a, a people of great generosity um, designed by God's law. And generosity to the poor was a core value of these people. And it remained a core value in the New Testament. If you take a look at Acts 2, 44, the early church saw caring for the needy as a core value of what they did. Acts 2, 44 says this, And they all believed together, and they had all things in common. I'm talking about their possessions. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. You drop down a little bit further into Acts 4, 34. It says this. This is an amazing statement. Listen to this. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it before the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to any had need. There was not a needy person among them in the church. In Acts 6, we see that the early church had a food distribution system for widows. You know, you think about that. Like, how often do we see that? A food distribution for widows, for those who couldn't take care of themselves. And, and one of the offices of the church, you've got elders and deacons. The deacons were actually designed to run that. They were to run that distribution system. To, to, and there's all kinds of things in Paul's letters about how to vet widows to make sure, like, is this a person where they don't have a family that can really take care of them? Do we need to lean on that family to take care of them first? Or, you know, is this person somebody that's kind of taking advantage of the system? They had, they had checks for those kind of things. But it was a massive part of what they did. In Acts 11.29, if you flip to that, it says that there was a famine that struck the church in Jerusalem. And it says, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they did, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so you have Paul, and this was a big part of his ministry. We think of his gospel preaching and his church planting, but a big part of his ministry too is fundraising for the poor. And we see it in letters like 2 Corinthians where he's, you know, he's fundraising. And, um, and it was a huge part because the Gentile churches in Macedonia and stuff like that, they, they had some poverty, but the Jerusalem church was super poor. For whatever reason, there was something going on in Judea and the area of Jerusalem where the churches were super poor. The Gentiles had more money. It was this great way of showing church unity, too, that these Gentile newcomers to the Lord were, were giving to be generous to the, the, the poor Jewish Christians. And so those things occupied Paul's ministry. And you might say, well, you know, the examples you gave me, they're pretty much just about, you know, giving to the poor that are believers, right? Poor within the church. And that definitely is an emphasis, okay, guys? The emphasis in the Bible is first, you take care of needy people in your family, okay? There's a passage in Timothy that says, if a person does not take care of the needs of their own family, they're worse than an unbeliever, okay? So it starts there. It starts with, are there needy people in your family? You take care of them. Next, are there needy people in your church? And then next, are there needy people in the church, multiple churches, just like they were giving to Judea from, from the Galatians. 
Um, but, you know, it doesn't really get us away from the issue of global poverty by saying that, well, we only are really required to give to needy Christians. Because let me ask you this, what percentage of the global poor are our brothers and sisters? Millions of them, right? I mean, there's, there's plenty there for you, you know? If that was your saying, you say, I only want to give to, to needy believers, there's, there's millions of them, right, in the, in the global church that, that live in poverty, and that could keep us busy. But, you know, in the fourth century, our people were known for reputation. They had a reputation for generosity even to non-Christians. Um, Emperor Julian, who was called Julian the Apostate, which doesn't sound like he was a good guy. Um, I don't think he chose that name. But he said this. He was complaining about Christians at that time, the fourth century, um, Emperor Julian. He said this. The Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, their pretend holiness in their lives has done the most harm to increase their numbers. For it is a disgrace that even when no Jew has to beg, and the, and the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see our lack of aid. He's saying, like, we look like totally non-generous jerks, right? Like, the Christians are even taking care of our poor. That was something in the fourth century. This is still while um, Christians, some of them were very much oppressed. We have an emperor called the apostate. Probably not a good time to be a Christian in Rome. Um, generosity to the poor guys is a vital sign of living faith. We see that throughout the New Testament. The generosity of the poor is, is a vital sign of living faith. Jonathan Edwards said, Where do we have any command in the Bible that is put down in stronger terms in a more urgent manner than the command to give to the poor? Once you start looking for it, it's all over. You know, you start going through the New Testament, you see this was a massive emphasis. Generosity of the poor is actually fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Even in that famous passage, you know the famous passage in James when he talks about faith and works? We miss the context sometimes. What's the work he talks about? It's care for the poor. You know, we kind of get this whole debate about faith and works, and we think about works in general, but in that passage he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a poor brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks in daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things that the body needs, what good is it? So also, faith without works is dead. And we hear a lot of things about, you know, Paul and James, and they didn't agree on the gospel. And we're going to get to that when we get into Galatians 3. We'll talk about how James fits with Galatians. But we saw last week, they met up and they agreed. Um, and so what, what he really is saying here, just as a quick thing, is we're not saved by works, but real living faith does work in and through us. To, to transform us, right? And one of the things it does is make us generous to the poor. James here gives it as a sign of living faith. Um, he says that dead faith is basically faith without generosity to the poor. You know, guys, living bodies have vital signs, right? So, like, your body has vital signs. You, the standard ones you check would be temperature. Should be above room temperature, at least. And then um, respiratory rate, right? Heart rate. Those are things that we know that someone's alive. We know have some idea of how well they're doing. Um, what the Bible says is that, that living faith has vital signs too, and generosity to the poor is one of them. And, and James isn't the only one to give generosity to the poor as a vital sign. You know, think about what Jesus taught. Think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, emphasis on care for the poor. Think about the Good Samaritan, major piece there, and it was to you know, a random stranger on the road, right? Um, it, John emphasizes in 1 John 3.17, he says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He's saying, like, the vital sign there is no vital sign. There's no vital sign of living faith there. He says, little children, let us love in word. Or let us not love just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you can think of that big passage, right, in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. 
What's the thing that he, the work that he points out to see that those people have living faith? It's care for the poor. I'll read it for you. Um, in Matthew 25, 31, it says, When the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, and he sits on his glorious throne, and before him is gathered all the nations, he will separate one people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to the ones on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I, and then he gives the reason. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous are like, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will say, truly, I say to you, you, when you did it for one of these, the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Isn't that amazing? It's as if King Jesus has disguised himself as the poor to test his subjects. And then it goes on and it says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will also say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or sick or a stranger or naked or in prison and not minister to you? And he will say, truly, when, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You know, so it's as if the king, you know, to test his subjects, is dressed as the poor to see what kind of response would happen. So what we see here is that generosity to the poor is a vital sign of living faith. And we might ask why. Why point out that one? He also points out forgiveness, by the way. That's a vital sign, too. Uh, over and over again, he says, you know, if you don't forgive, then neither are you forgiven. It's a vital sign of living faith. A vital sign of living faith is care for the poor. Why? Because remember how Jesus said in the, in the Beatitudes, remember? He said that um, it was the poor in spirit that are heirs of the kingdom. Generosity to the poor, guys, shows us if we really are poor in spirit. It shows us if we really see ourselves as poor before God. And so in, in Galatians 2.10, it isn't random that they would add, only remember the poor, you know. It's not just an afterthought. It's not random. It turns out that generosity to the poor is tightly linked to true gospel belief. And it is because the gospel, guys, liberates us to be generous to the poor. Um, Paul made this connection. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 8.9. Paul made this connection in 2 Corinthians 8-9. Paul was, once again, fundraising. He's going around, he's fundraising Macedonians, and then he writes a letter to the Corinthians, and he talks about how the Corinthians are giving. He's asking them to give. And then he makes this connection between true gospel belief and generosity, and he says this, 2 Corinthians 8-9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that a cool way of explaining the gospel? The gospel in the context of poverty and riches. The gospel shows us, guys, that we are the poor. You know, the gospel shows us that we are the poor. And you'll only see the gospel as good news if you see yourself as poor. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. He's saying, he's saying you have to see yourself as poor to receive the gospel. You have to be poor in spirit. You can't be middle class in spirit. You know what middle class in spirit is? Middle class is a totally different feel, isn't it? Middle class is a feel where I can take care of myself. I can pay my own way. I can pay my own bills. I don't need a handout. You know, guys, I wrestle with, you know, and you, those of you who want to have dinner with me or whatever will notice this. I wrestle with people paying my way. 
I don't like it. And then we have this big embarrassing. Tasha's like, just let them pay. Like, don't make it a big scene. You know, there's this, ah, it's wrestling. You know, it's like, stop. You know, why? Because I'm middle class in spirit, right? Used to pay my own way. Don't really want that. Middle class in spirit sounds like I can pay my own way. I just need to try harder. I've got what it takes to earn this for myself. We can't come to God that way. We can't come to God saying, I don't need anyone's handout or charity. You know, right? That's middle class in spirit. If we're middle class in spirit, guys, we're going to love legalism. We're going to love a legalistic religion. We're going to love a religion that gives us a list of things to earn our acceptance. We're like, I'm used to this. Tell me what's needed. I'll do it. I can make all these points. It's great. That's middle class in spirit. And it, 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 you're basically saying, I know how to work hard and earn my way. You know, nobody has to help me out. Just show me what I have to do and I'll do it. But guys, when we see the full requirements of God's law, we see that we're very much poor. <laughs> we see that we very much don't live up. I mean, just take this one. Here's one that everybody likes. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody dislike that one? Everybody loves that one. That one's just so, like, clearly right, isn't it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians 5, 14, the reason I picked it is Paul said the whole law is fulfilled in that one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You, should, you know what that means? <laughs> That's a problem, guys. To love your neighbor as yourself would mean to meet the needs of your neighbors. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's anybody that has a need that you come across, right? The person that you see and you're tempted to go on the other side of the road, that's your neighbor. To meet their needs with all of the same urgency and care and detail and joy that you meet your own needs. Wow. That's what it would mean for us to fully live that. That you would meet the needs of everyone you come across, every one of your neighbors, with all the urgency, care, detail, joy that you meet your own needs. How's that going for you guys? It's not going well for me. You know, I'm poor before God. If that's the way to earn righteousness before God, I'm done. You know, I've done terribly at this. Every day failing at this. And so what the law shows us is the law shows us that we really are poor before God. It makes us poor in spirit where we say, I have nothing to offer. I can't just try harder. Because you can hear that command and you go like, all right, I'll go do that. No, trying harder is not going to do this. Now, this is something that by the power of the spirit, we learn to do more and more every day. But we're not going to fulfill this law, right? We're not going to perfectly fulfill this law. Someone has to give us a handout. That's our only hope. Our only hope is mercy. Our only hope is that somebody else would pay our way. And it's really good news, guys, when you're poor in spirit, that Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's because all of us bring to Jesus only debt. If you're not a Christian today and you were to come to him today, which I pray that you would, all you bring to him is debt. All that we've ever brought to him is debt. A debt we can never pay, guys. A debt that earns us everlasting judgment. Do you know why hell is never-ending? It's because the debt's never paid. You know, a lot of times we think, well, it should only be a certain length. That's the thought that we could pay it. It's an unpayable debt. It's forever because the debt's never paid. Guys, Jesus saw us in our debt. He saw us in our poverty, and he had mercy on us. He left his riches. How was Jesus rich? King of the universe. Okay, that makes you rich, right? Happiest of all beings. If we think about what it is to be rich, you know, if I was rich, I'd be happy, right? I'd have everything I wanted. Um, he's the happiest of all beings. He lacked nothing that he wanted. He was completely to free, free to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. These are all the things riches bring, right? He had the richest relationships in the Trinity, right? He had no needs outside of himself for relationship. Fully living out all of his purposes and will, Jesus was rich in the ultimate sense of the word, and Jesus left his riches, in heaven to come down and what? Be born in a manger. 
doesn't get more broke, guys, than born in a manger broke, right? Like, there's nothing more broke than putting your baby in a manger, right? Um, and then when they brought, when his parents brought him, and this is how poor of a family is from, when they brought him to dedication in the temple, they weren't able to bring a lamb or something like that that would really be a dignified thing. They brought what the law allowed the poorest people to bring. It was two little birds, right? They used the poorest offering. They were very poor. It says that he was a laborer. A lot of times we think, oh, yeah, Jesus was a carpenter, and he probably made, like, really nice carpentry stuff. The word laborer is, is it, the word carp, that we translate carpenter is actually labor. It could have even been he was a mason working with stone. I mean, this is a rough work kind of thing. This isn't, you know, finely made furniture that's put in a museum. This is a guy that goes to work, thankless job, bangs on some rocks, maybe bangs on some wood, does his thing day after day. Did it for decades without any real appreciation. He was rejected and cast off. Jesus was poor in the sense he had nowhere to lay his head. Remember, people were coming to him and like, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he's all, okay, you can come with me if you want. But the birds have nests. The foxes have holes. I have nowhere to sleep. Want to come? Right? He's poor. Guys, our Savior was a homeless Middle Eastern man. You just realize that? I think you really need to like let that sink in. Because we have the greatest ability to have kinship with the homeless and the poor because our Savior was poor. See, the homeless are not a problem. Our Savior was homeless, right? Like, we have the best resources to have kinship with the poor. And so he arrives in Jerusalem right before he's going to die. How does he arrive? He arrives on a borrowed donkey, right? He has Passover in a borrowed room. He dies naked. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. Poor, right? He knows, he knows what it's like to be poor. But guys, that wasn't the real poverty Paul's talking about, was it? That wasn't the real poverty he was talking about. The real poverty he's talking about is that on the cross, Jesus Christ made himself poor by taking on himself our whole sin debt. That's how he's poor. It wasn't his physical poverty. And so on the cross there, guys, he paid it all. He said at the end, he says, it is finished. Words to telestai. It's an accounting term. Paid in full. Our whole debt. Your debt, though great and something you could never pay, after even millions of years in hell, you couldn't pay this thing. He paid it on the cross. He paid it in full if you'll give it to him. I would just ask you, plead with you guys this morning. There's no reason to leave here without getting that debt relieved, right? There's no reason to leave here carrying that debt that puts you in judgment before God when you could give it to him today. You could give it to him during worship, you know? You, these songs could be your first declaration of faith. You could, you could pray in your seat and you could say, take my debt, make me new, I'm yours, adopt me, help me turn from my sin, give me your righteousness, I'm done living my own life, I'm really bad at this, you know, I'm, I'm really bad at doing my own life, I'm, I'm in complete poverty before you take my life, he would do it today, do that. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all with his body and blood, the things that communion symbolizes, his body and his blood. Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Isn't that good news? And these riches, guys, that we receive is all access, full access to everything that Jesus has and everything that he is. Isn't that great? That's what the riches is. Ephesians says this. Check this out. Ephesians 2, 7 says, so that in, this is why he did this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. What he's saying is, it will take ages. It will take eons. It will take thousands, millions, billions of years for him to accomplish showing you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ. This is going to take some time. 
He's got riches. I don't even know what that means, guys. I'm not even sure. I think it sounds awesome, though. Whatever it is takes a really, really long time to do, guys. The gospel is good news to the poor. The gospel is good news to the poor. Remember what Jesus said when he first started his ministry in Luke 4? It's so cool. Luke 4, he's first starting his ministry. It says he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And you could do this if you're an adult man in that culture. You know, they would hand you the scroll and say, hey, what do you have to say? You know, you open it up, and you roll out the little Isaiah, and you read it, and then you say some words about it, right? And so Jesus takes the scroll, and he finds the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, this is so cool, and then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. He's quiet for a while. Everybody's staring at him. It says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were on him. And then he says, the shortest sermon that I've ever heard. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that awesome? Did you just love that? Drops the mic, walks out. You know, there was some other drama after that. But, but the point is, is that he was saying that his ministry is about good news to the poor, guys. The gospel is good news to the poor. It's good news to us who are spiritually poor and bring this great debt, and Jesus has paid it all. It's good news to guys to the physically poor. Because the gospel actually frees us to be generous to the poor. You guys realize that? Anywhere there are Christians, the poor are blessed by their generosity. This is a common feature of the church. I mean, think of all the relief organizations and compassion organizations and hospitals that have been founded on gospel faith. How many hospitals say Saint this guy and Saint that guy and Saint her and Saint him, right? What is that? Started by Christians, right? Think about all these relief agencies. Sometimes they go secular after a while and they don't really retain that gospel center, but what were they started on? They were started on gospel joy. As in the midst of this hurricane relief, do you know what the third largest uh, relief organization has been? It's the Southern Baptist Convention. Millions of dollars from the Southern Baptist Convention. You probably won't hear that <laughs> anywhere, but um, online somewhere maybe. Being poor in spirit, guys, does that. When we're middle class in spirit, we're tempted to despise the poor, aren't we? To see them as a problem, see them as an embarrassment, to see them as like, oh no, there's a person, I don't know what to do with them, right? Eugene Peterson says that the poor are not a problem to be solved. There are people to be joined. And the gospel allows us to do that. The gospel frees us to join the poor because the gospel shows us that we've all been poor and in need of a handout, right? You know, people that have been poor, when they see other people that have been poor, they're like, hey, I know how that is. Guys, we spiritually, we know how that is. Even if you haven't been in that place physically, you know how that is spiritually, to have a debt you can't pay. The gospel makes us poor in spirit, and it gives us a whole new way of viewing the poor. Like when you see a person and they're unclean and they're in rags, it reminds us of Isaiah 64, 6, right? We have all become like one who is unclean, and in all our righteous deeds, we were like people in filthy, polluted garments, right? When you see that, you remember that you were once in filthy rags in your sin, and that Jesus has dressed you in robes of righteousness. When you see a person that's, you know, bankrupt and destitute, you can remember uh, Revelation 3.17, where Jesus said, you think you're rich and have prospered, and you don't need anything, not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. That was us, right? That was us. And, and he, he made us right with him. When you see someone's homeless, you can think of Ephesians 2.12, where it says, Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Because we were spiritually homeless, weren't we? We were alienated. We were strangers. When you meet somebody that's totally dependent on handouts, 
You can remember Romans 5, 6, where it says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We don't despise the poor and needy. We, we, don't, we don't feel the need to avoid them. The gospel frees us to join them and see how we might serve them as brothers and sisters, how we might meet their needs. Um, and because Jesus abundantly met our needs, and he met it till it was gone. And Jesus was not tight-fisted with us. He ministered to our needs. Guys, the cool thing is, is that the Old Testament law, which had a lot of cool features for the poor, the Old Testament law could legislate you to be generous. The Old Testament law could force you to be generous. Only the gospel, guys, helps us to love the poor. Right? That law couldn't do that. That's something only the gospel can do. And it helps us, too, guys, because we have a pretty one-dimensional view of the poor. And I think we can all admit this. I think it's the impulse of my own heart. The Newsweek, there was recently a survey, and who knows if Newsweek's there. But they, they found that basically about half of American Christians believe that those who live in poverty mainly do so because they're lazy. Okay? And I think you guys can all admit that sometimes you have that impulse, right? That's an American impulse. Apparently it's an American Christian impulse to think these things. Guys, it's a one-dimensional view of poverty. The Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible talks, is multidimensional. It talks about the unrighteous poor, for sure. Those who are taking advantage of the system and sin has brought them in. But the Bible also talks a lot about the righteous poor, right? That it was not due to their sin. It was due to injustice or calamity or the brokenness of the world. Think of people in our culture that are in really destitute situations because of psychological damage, right? Brokenness in their psych... So family brokenness, um, economic brokenness. The prophets talked a whole lot about that kind of thing, right? The prophets would talk about injustice in society and, um, and being victimized by the rich. I mean, there's rich metaphor and, and understanding in the prophets about that. It speaks far more of the righteous poor than the unrighteous poor, it turns out. And so we shouldn't assume when we see a particular poor person that they're poor due to sin. The Bible wouldn't do that. We should give them the benefit of the doubt. And we should, guys, be willing to be taken advantage of. I think this is something that I, I know this may not be where you're at, and that's okay. But I think that we need to be willing to be taken advantage of a bit. Because I think a lot of times we're like, we're too smart to be taken in. You know, We're too smart to be taken advantage of by somebody that says that they have a particular need or something. But guys, our God gets his generosity taken advantage of all the time. I just don't think on the final day to say to the Lord, like, they never took advantage of me. I was too shrewd for that. He's going to be like, well, they took advantage of my generosity. He'll be like, oh, probably should have followed that. Now, I'm not saying you should give to the poor in a way that's going to be destructive to them. You know, a lot of you guys probably have things where you don't give cash, and I think that's wise. Why not just think, though, of certain ways that you could give to them that wouldn't be cash? And sometimes it takes a little extra time, so you pull up. There's a homeless person there. I mean, it's more and more now, right? It just seems like it's a growing thing. And, um, and just ask them, hey, what are three things I could get you in the store right now that would make your day better? Like, you could do that. It'd take a little extra time. You wouldn't have to give them cash. Um, and you could just take, take a chance on being, on being generous in that way. For the church and for our ability to be generous to people, like people come here and they ask for help, we, we are working on right now having deacons for that. We do have people that are operating as deacons now. So they would be immediately generous to people that come here, um, meeting immediate needs right away, kind of a relief way. And then they would talk to them about what to do from there. So if they need ongoing help, they would talk to them about budget. They would talk about things. There was some sort of issues in the family or in their lives, something we'd help to get them uh, gospel ministry for. Uh, one thing I want to relieve you guys of, though, is that we don't have to do everything. Okay? I think that's one of the reasons we kind of back away from this thing. We say, it's overwhelming. We can't fix it. Okay, guys, you can't fix it. All right? Did everybody relax? Ah. You can't fix it, <sighs> okay? 
The ultimate solution to poverty is what? Christ's return. The short term is Christ's people. Okay? You should not feel guilty that you cannot accomplish what only Jesus can accomplish. Okay? You cannot solve all the problems of poverty even just right around you, right? You're not called to. Jesus will do that when he comes back. But he's called us to bring substantial healing in the meantime. And there's three ways. I want to do them real quick. There's some three ways to think about remembering the poor. I think each of us as families should think about what's our, what's our strategy going to be? What's our investment strategy when it comes to the poor? So that we're proactive, so that we don't have to feel guilty, because we have something we're doing, right? I think a lot of times we're in that weird place where we don't know what to do. As families and as a church, we need to have an investment strategy. And there's three levels that you could think of. There's relief, there's development, and then there's reform. So relief would be meeting immediate needs of the poor. And we get that pretty regularly, right? You get people asking for things from you. I do pretty regularly. Um, we should have a plan for that. Maybe we have some things in our car that we have ready, right? The deacons are talking about we'll get families together and kind of assemble some kits of things so we can have them in our car. So it could be different. It could be when you're driving down and you see that homeless person that wants something, you don't go like, oh, no, you know, I don't see you, Right? But you could be excited. You'd be like, hey, I've been looking for you. I got stuff for you. You know, like we'd have some. That's relief, right? And um, I was talking to a, actually a homeless friend of mine to th- this week, surprisingly. It was like a strange thing. I'm working on this. And, and this guy that I know that's homeless, he texted me and he had some particular needs. And I was like, this is a coincidence, right? <laughs> you know, so I was like, oh, this is great. So went down, got him some things that he needed. And I was talking to him later and I said, what would be some common things that we could have ready that would be helpful to you guys, you know, that ask for things. And he goes, because most of us are going to be very uncomfortable giving any kind of cash. And he's all, yeah, I don't give us cash, he says. I was like, oh, okay. Okay, good. He said, food gift cards. So places that only sell food, you know. Um, it's helpful if those food places also have somewhere they can plug in their phones or something like that. So like McDonald's or places like that. Um, re- um, other places with food. Um, sleeping bags, that's what he was asking for this week. It's getting colder. So sleeping bags. So, I mean, you guys could have a blanket or a smaller sleeping bag in your minivan or whatever you drive and be ready, you know. That that's something like, hey, you pull out, you see this person. Hey, do you need a sleeping bag? They'd be like... What? You know, like, yeah. Oh, here you go. Here's a sleeping bag. Um, socks, he said. He said shoes, but I don't know how we're going to have shoes for every person. Like, a whole rack. I don't think that's going to work. So socks, clothing. He said, and then resources, like job referral type places. And I know that Mike and Tim are working on compiling a list of these things of, like, places they could go that would be helpful for them to find jobs. Um, lists of AA and NA meetings, he said, would be hugely helpful in that area. And so we'll do that for you guys. We'll make these lists, and you put that in your bag, and you have resources, too. Um, he said, you know, referrals like food pantry and resources, that kind of stuff. Put a New Testament in there. Put a card to the church in there. How cool would it be if we regularly started to have the homeless people in our community here with us in worship, um, inviting them in? Um, he said low-cost phones could be a good way. I didn't think of that, but there are these, like, really low-cost phones. That's important to them. Um, tarps, uh, tents, things like that that would keep them dry. I mean, that's the kind of things he was, he was talking about. And we'll make a list for you guys and, and work with you on that. So there's relief. The next level would be development. So this is helping the poor move to self-sufficiency. Great example of that would be um, you turn for Christ. Be a great one. You got a lot of, you know, dysfunction there with addiction. You turn for Christ, a place where they would stay, and they would get to a point where they're actually able to be self-sufficient. 
A girl's House of Refuge is a cool example of this. I mean, here you have Holly's over there with her team. They rescue women out of sex trafficking. They, they disciple them in this home. They give them job training. They get them to a school. It's development, right? It's not just relief. Relief's important. We give relief, but then there's development. The deacons will do some stuff like this within our own body. We kind of gradually work people along and help them to become self-sufficient. And then the, the one above that is reform. Reform's harder. It's changing social structures and things that create dependency. The prophets talked a lot about this. This would be things getting involved with our city and county to address ways that people get into poverty and get out of poverty. That's something that Mike has a, a huge interest in. Guys, the gospel is the good news to the physically poor because it liberates us to be generous. We will not be the solution, okay? The ultimate solution is Jesus' return. But until then, he sent his people, Right? And as agents of the kingdom, we can bring substantial healing that provides just a little foretaste, a little appetizer of what the kingdom will be like when it comes. When Christ comes with his kingdom here on earth, there'll be nobody that's homeless and poor and um, in places like that. You want me to read you a little bit of what it'll be like? Isaiah 65 says this about the kingdom. This, This is what's coming. Isaiah 65, 21 says this. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. Like, they won't lose their stuff. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Isn't that cool? That human flourishing. Like, we'll have work to do, but that work is not going to be, like, frustrating and include a ton of loss. It's going to be a meaningful labor that we'll do in a community that's centered around our King Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Can you just think of that? We're made for that. We're made to have some sort of vocation, some sort of thing to do, and we'll have that in the kingdom. And those who are physically poor in this age, and maybe God never quite gets them anywhere, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this friend of mine, but in the, in the age to come, he will not be homeless. Let's pray. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.